You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So let's open in prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word. You have elevated above everything. Your word is truth. We are sanctified by your word. We are set apart. We are grown day by day. We are challenged. We are instructed. We are corrected. We are reproved. Your word is perfect. And we look to it for everything that we need to be godly in Christ Jesus. And this morning as we look at this concept of love, let it be rooted in elevating your word above everything so that our love will be a love that reflects the love of the Father himself. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our discussions, we'll read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7 here in a minute. But in our discussions of this concept of love, what love never does is not honor the word of God. Love never gives its own opinion, a Christian love. Its opinion is rooted in and comes from the word of God itself. We are sanctified by God's word, Jesus said in John 17. And God has elevated his word above everything. What I'm getting at is there are so many today who use the word love as an excuse to not confront evil. They use it as an excuse to not confront the wickedness in their own lives. They use it as an excuse to ignore false doctrine. They use it as an excuse to take a pass on things that defame the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether they're in the world or in the church means, neither, means nothing. And so as we are discussing and learning and reading from God's word about the, the word love, which we will be discussing for a couple weeks now, those are things that it does not mean. What it does mean is that I root my expression of love in God's word. And if that means that I'm going to serve you, I'm going to serve you with a loving heart. If it means I must confront you or you must confront me because of false doctrine, because of sin, because of the need for correction or reproof, for instruction, you will do that in love. I will do that in love. But it has to be done. We leave these things aside to the destruction of the church. We leave these things aside to the, to the defamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... When I'm talking about love, let's keep that in the back of our minds. Love is important. It's fabulous. It's wonderful. It's a nexus of the way the gifts can properly serve. But it never means compromising the Word of God. Never. And if it does, then it is in fact not love. So with that, let's open reading chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If, I'll wait till you get there. First 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. That's about as far as we'll get today, if we get that far. <clears throat> if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. 
It does not, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So we ended last week on uh, verse 3, giving our possessions to feed the poor, surrendering our body to be burned, martyrdom, or being branded as a slave, either one, but having not love, those things profit nothing. And it's important that we understand Paul's, it's hyperbole in one sense, but it's rooted, in, it's rooted and grounded in the truth. If things are not done in love, their eternal consequence is nothing. Or it could be said their eternal consequence is damnation in some cases. But he uses this hyperbole at the, at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So as we talked about, the idea of giving one's body to be burned has different possibilities. It could be being given as a slave or actually martyrdom. But either one, if it's done not in love, that actually has no result. And so that kind of ends his introduction to what we're going to go into now, the 16 attributes of love or non-attributes, however they're presented. And uh, that starts with verse 4, 1 Corinthians verse four, 13, verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So now we turn to the positive attributes of love. This section from verse 4 through verse, verse 8 holds some of the most wonderful information we can ever read. Um, actually, I say that every time I'm reading something in the Scripture. This is the most wonderful. So it's all wonderful. It's all important. It's all incredibly important to our lives in Christ. But this, this particular chapter has held the imaginations and the hearts of people, Christians, for two millennia. Um, interestingly enough, uh, reading it without putting it into action, however, takes us back to verses 1 through 3. It's worth nothing. So the attributes that we, be, we will be looking at bespeak a person who has the love of the living God in their heart. It has been said by uh, one person I read that this is actually a portrait of Jesus Christ. It's like he said, one commentator said, this could be likened to the idea of Jesus Christ sitting down for a portrait, and his portrait would be one of love, the love described here. So it bespeaks a person who has that love of God in their heart. We will be looking at all 16 attributes, uh, all of them, which by the way, in case you were wondering, are impossible. They're impossible for us to live out. It is that very impossibility that should make us grateful that God has chosen us in His Son and that the Holy Spirit has come to live within us. For without those, we could not do this. These attributes would be impossible. But with those, with the Spirit of God, with the Word of God, everything is possible. In English, we describe the attributes of love with adjectives, but in the original Greek, every word is a verb, an action word. Love isn't just patient, it acts patiently. Love isn't just kind, it does kind things, it does kind works. You could say love patients others, love kinds others. It is this aspect of love that comes directly from the character of God. So looking at the word patience, makrothumio, makrothumeo, actually, of the words in Greek that mean patience, this one significantly refers to being long-tempered with people. The other Greek word, hupomene, means re being referred, referred to uh, being patient with circumstances. Both are difficult, but I would submit to you that it is far more difficult to be patient with people than it is with events or circumstances. And I would also posit that many of the, of the events and circumstances that we have to be patient with were caused by people. So... <laughs> 
<laughs> the buck stops almost always with people. Is it easy to be patient with people? Some people? Well, I see some no's, but there's some people that are, it's pretty easy to be patient with. Like my wife is just, I, I know nobody's perfect, but she's one step shy of it. She's really easy to be patient with. I can't imagine what it be like, must be like for her living with me, though. God really wanted to develop patience in her life, so he married her to an idiot. <laughs> so those two words are separated by, I, I, in my experience, at least not much of anything, because experience has told me that most situations that occur in our lives that are difficult to be patient with were caused by people. So this is a quality in which someone is able to not stoically, but kindly and sweetly endure the difficulties of people. It is a, someone who is very slow-tempered. It is extremely difficult to make them angry. Chrysostom said, it is the word used of the man who is wronged and who easily has it in his power to avenge himself, but that will not. He will not do it. Remember, this is a characteristic of a Christian who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and it is, this possessed, and it is thus possessed by the ability to properly... He is thus possessed by the ability to properly love others. The patient Christian will never retaliate or attempt to take revenge. Never. Even though the ancient Greeks considered vengeance a virtue, the Christian recognizes that not only is it not a virtue, but it is a danger to ourselves and to others spiritually. God himself has evidenced infinite patience over the last 6,000 years by not simply pressing his thumb on the recalcitrant universe and sending it back to where it belonged, as the evolutionists would believe, into a little dot, as we believe, to just before he began the creation process. It is a, it is a rebellious universe. Is it an unruly universe? And God has been infinitely patient in the last 6,000 years. So love is also, and we'll, and we'll ask questions when we get to the end of this, but love is also kind. Praise to am I. Interesting word comes from the root of the same word where we get the word grace. <clears throat> As mentioned earlier, the words used in this section of 1 Corinthians to describe love are actually verbs. They are action words. The word for kindness, it comes from a root which means to be useful to others. There is a much stronger, this is a much stronger word than someone who just smiles and pats you on the back and gives you a verse of scripture to comfort you. This is someone who does all of that, but they also look to the person's needs. What is causing the pain in their life? How can I help them? Are there particular physical needs that I can, I can attend to that would help alleviate the pain? Is there anything I can do in this person's life to bring them closer to Christ and to respond to the need that they actually have? And that means you have to take the time to be a relational person and discern what the actual need is. Sometimes when we're in pain, we don't really know what our needs are. Which I remember one time when I went to help a, a dog that was hitting the highway. I was a kid, and I went out to help him, and he bit me. But I, I like dogs. I didn't bite him back. So I, I kind of got, got him to my dad, and we helped him out. It was a little German shepherd, and I don't remember whatever happened. We got him to the vet or something. It was like, it was like 50 years ago, so please forgive me for not remembering. But I just remember that I went out to help the dog, and he bit me. And I jumped back, and I remember saying, you stupid dog. You know. And sometimes that's what happens in our lives. People who need help are the ones that are likely to bite out at us if we're trying to help them. But love is patient, and it is kind. It wants to be useful. And I know this is a cliche, but it would be appropriate in this situation when you're working with someone such to ask that question we've often heard and seen on bumper stickers, what would Jesus do? What would he do? And we have 
his word to give us insight into what he would do. Use it. Spend time in it. This kindness, by the way, starts at home. The one who can seem to be kind in public but is not doing so at home is not a kind person at all. He's a very good actor. It would be almost like a person, this would be like a person, if someone who's verbing the kindness that God talks about here, who wants to figure out how to best be kind to others by practicing on, on their own at home. I'm going to be kind to those at home because I love them. And unknowingly, it is a, it is a research project and a, and a study system that allows them to become adept at being kind. Isn't that, wouldn't that be a good skill to have, the skill of kindness? to be a kind person. I'm not talking about a mushy, fluffy, kind person who overlooks everything, but someone who looks right through, is able to, by practice, by studying the Word of God, by understanding, laser beam through the fog and get to the needs of the person and help them. It's a most practical word in that it seeks the welfare of others and it enjoys doing that. Remember, we're dealing with a group of Christians that Paul is writing to who were so unloving to one another that their actions were actually negative towards one another. Not, not kind, but unkind. That is, they were seeking their own welfare and not the welfare of others. They were actually doing things at the expense of others. Spiritual gifts practiced in this kind way, the properly kind way, or the improperly kind way, could not help but be ineffective. Spiritual gifts practiced in the appropriate kind way, looking out for the needs of others, can't help but be beneficial to others and uplifting. Remember, Paul taught in the first three verses of this chapter that if we do things, if we do things without love, they are useless. Kindness done as a duty may get the job done, but in the long term, it has no real value. Relationships are not confirmed and strengthened. The gospel is not seen as a benevolent blessing. Indeed, the very help one wants to give may come to be resented if it is not done because of kindness because you love the person, because you want to help them. So I'm not saying don't help people, even if you don't feel that kindness towards them, but recognize that this is part of the, this, this aspect of love is a person who wants to help others, who delights in it. They, they become not a project, not, a, not a, a, a something I can act on, but someone who I care about, and someone who I want to deliver help to. The third thing in this verse is the word jealous. Love is not jealous. Uh, the word is uh, one of those onomatopoeic words that sounds, at least in the original language, I guess it sounded like what it was. It was the word zeal, zeluo, means to boil over with, with, with zeal. Now, this word can be used in a positive and a negative way. Um, here we have one of those of the first eight of first of eight negative descriptions of love, something that love is not. Positively, the word can connote an, an earnest desire to do great things, such as zealously proclaim a gospel. This is the kind of zeal or jealousy that can be con or jealousy that can be considered excellent. We need to be jealous for the gospel. We need to be jealous for the word of God. We need to be jealous for the well-being of others in the right way. Um, God is a jealous God in the most excellent way. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth because beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the, children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. He's a jealous God. He wants your worship. 
He wants you to give it to him and to him alone. Not to things, not to people, not to other gods, false gods, which all of those have become if you are indeed worshiping them, if you're giving your honor to, his honor to them. He wants our praise and our worship. He does not want us to give that praise to anything else or anyone else because only he is worthy of it. The giving of worship to a false god is damaging to the giver. And may I say it here today, there is one God, creator of all things, and his name is not Allah. We look at his name. We, if you want to give him names, he's been giving multiple names in the scriptures, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shammah, all kinds of names. But his name is I Am, if you want to actually get at his name. That's what he told Moses. He said, Moses said, what do I tell the children of Israel when I go back to them and say God spoke to me? He said, tell them that I Am has spoken to you. And he is the only God. There's not 47 ways to God. Christianity is the most exclusive proclamation of the true gospel that there is. And that is so that people will actually become saved and go to be with their creator in eternity. That being said, God's jealousy is appropriate. There are two kinds of envy that this is talking about, at least that I've been able to discern as I studied through this. Two kinds of envy in the world, jealousy in the world, that can be likened to this word. The first is a form where someone says, I want what you have. This is basic envy, and it is truly destructive both to the envier, to the envies, and to the soul. It's destructive to the church. It's destructive at, at, to the humanity at large because it is a taking rather than a giving. And anything that is a taking is not of God, not in that sense. The second form of envy, however, is more base and wicked. This is the envy says, this is the envy that says, looks at you with your nice things and says, I wish you didn't have those. I'm not even all that concerned about whether or not I have them. I just don't want you to have them. Because you look better than me. Because you seem better than me. Because, maybe in my heart of hearts, I think you are better than me. These two forms of envy have no place in the life of a loving Christian. Well, what kind of envy does? The one I described first. Envy to proclaim the gospel. Envy to serve others. Jealousy to serve others. So the love that Paul is describing here is the kind of love that is delighted when other people have wonderful things. Delighted. It is blessed when others are blessed. It is thrilled when someone else gets honor. This love finds pleasure in the elevation of others. Much of the evil that was occurring in the Corinthian church could probably be laid at the doorstep of this character flaw, jealousy. In their desire to have more and take more from others, they, they sued one another. They were jealous of the abilities of others, and they falsely claimed spiritual gifts that they did not have and exercised them in a pagan way. This resulted in disorder and schism in the church. This is a natural outgrowth of succumbing to the jealous urge, and James explains it well in James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, bitter jealousy, I'm bitter and I want, I want things that other people have and I don't want them to have them themselves. Selfish ambition, I'm going to get to the top. And if I have to step on you, just figure out what size my shoes are and buy me a new pair if I need them. That's the kind of ambition it's talking about. He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. It's arrogance. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, get this, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. 
Was there not disorder in the Corinthian church that Paul was dealing with? And it was this selfish ambition and this jealousy that was partly responsible for causing that. And so Paul is telling them, don't have that kind of jealousy. Don't envy what others have. Don't want them not to have it. Love them. Be delighted for them. The next one, the next word is um, brag. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Love does not brag. Aren't I doing a great job? Isn't this a wonderful class? Aren't I perfect? Don't you wish all Sunday school teachers were like me? Oh, please get me a bucket. That's, what he's, that's one of the things he's talking about. Everything good in the Corinthians' lives. So this, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. This interesting word comes from the Greek word, root, which is an automatic poetic word form, like the word sizzle. When you cook bacon in the frying pan, it sizzles. The word sounds like what's going on there. Um, when that little bird comes out of the cuckoo clock and he says cuckoo, that's why we call it a cuckoo clock. You didn't know I could do the high voice thing, did you? So this is another one of those words. It's fusio, fusio. It's a windbag word. That guy is like a breath of stale air. He's a windbag, fusio. That's the Greek word that this word, this, it, 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 it connotes the idea of a windbag. The Corinthian believers were in their own minds already perfect, but they were exceeding the things that had been taught them, and Paul warned them not to exceed what had been written because that would produce arrogance. Arrogance is never, never to be a characteristic of a Christian. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 8. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that one of you so that no one of you will become arrogant on behalf or, or one against the other. Uh, one on behalf of somebody that you lifted up or against your, or yourself becoming arrogant. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You've already become rich. You've already become, you have, you have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. Sarcasm. Sorry, Paul was using sarcasm there. You really think you're something. Well, if you are, I wish you really were so we could reign with you. Everything good in the Corinthians' lives had come from the Lord or had been built into them by others. They had no reason to be arrogant, and yet it is the human condition that we always find ways to think we're better than others. We always compare ourselves to others. Jesus warned the disciples, can you add one cubit to your height? You can't. Don't compare yourself among yourselves. The... The polar opposite of this, polar opposite of this can be seen in the ministry of John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest man ever born. He had a ministry of baptism, preaching, and as a prophet, his answers to those, his answer to those of his followers who were concerned because of Jesus' popularity was this. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is the attitude of love. It doesn't lift itself up, it lifts others up. William Carey, who has been considered the father of modern missions translated and translated portions of the scriptures into 34 language, was a brilliant linguist, yet was often ridiculed for his humble beginnings because he was raised in a simple home in England. Once, an arrogant highbrow said regarding Mr. Carey, I understand, Mr. Carey, that you once worked as a shoemaker. Oh, no, your eminence. Carey responded, I was not a shoemaker, only a shoe repairman. That's the attitude that the Lord wants us to have. 
It has been said that pride may very well be the root of every sin. Pride and arrogance have no place in the life of a Christian. We all struggle with it in large and small ways, some more than others, but it has a root in, hum it has a, a root in humanity that only the Holy Spirit can weed out. So that was a lot to bite off there in, in one verse. Any comments about, did you make notes and you have some things you want to suggest? Or I'm not sure what the word Allah means. I guess I should point that out first. Anybody in here know how to, to translate Arabic? Okay. Okay. I would be very cautious about calling God anything other than what he has named himself in the word of God. I don't find Allah in the word of God. So it's, it's one of those things where if I'm ministering to a, a different religion, I'm not going to adopt their, their colloquialisms to witness. I'm going to use the word of God to witness to them. And then as much as possible, make it understandable to them. But I'm not going to use their words for the things because that would connote a wrong thing about God's word. It's exclusive. He gave this to us. Now, if I was speaking, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not a KJ only or a New American Standard only. I'm a language only. So if you're in German, if you speak German and you've got a German Bible, use that German Bible, whatever the translation is. If you speak Indonesian, well, whatever, Hindi, use that Hindi. But, but the point is, call him by the names that he has authorized himself to be called by. And he's given us plenty. I, don't, I should have counted them up. There's, there's at least 10 or 12, maybe more. Combinations, yeah, combination names, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shammah. But his, his primary name, that everything else devolves from is I am. I was before, I am after, I am in the middle, I am. I am the creator, I am that which everything emanates from. So, and, and interestingly enough, I love it that the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 said, said to the Pharisees, I am. And they, they, they were really upset at him, and rightly so, because if he wasn't, he was a blasphemer and needed to be killed. So the Lord Jesus took, has the name of Jehovah God, because he is Jehovah God. He's the second son, the, the second person in the Trinity, in, uh, not in any of a secondary way, but just because we have to have numbers, in, in, and there's no common core in heaven. I got to quit doing that. I got to quit beating that horse, don't I? <laughs> so I would use his names. <clears throat> any other comments? Okay, one of the words we're going to talk about is the offend word, and then we're going to get to that. But how do you lovingly point someone back to this verse when they are not being kind when they are not being patient, when they are being jealous, when they're bragging, when they're not arrogant, when they're being arrogant. I think that, first of all, you don't... I, I struggle with this because I tend to not candy coat things. And, and I'm learning that there's ways to respond to different people. I would, I would, if my wife ever did this, she never has, but if she ever did this, I would use a different method for bringing her to an understanding than I would of a coworker or a Christian coworker, or a fellow elder, I would use a different method. I would use the same word, but I would use a different method. So how can, I, how can I flesh this out? If it's your son, you have a relationship with him. And in the context of that relationship, maybe you have already established through years and years of work with them that when you want to bring something to their knowledge, you say, is this being thus and such? So you can say, are you, are you being kind here? And well, what do you mean? Well, let's, would you mind looking at God's word with me? What, see what kind means? And, and then you could actually go to this verse and then flesh it out with all the, if, if they're willing to do that, flesh it out with all the, the uh, other verses that comment on this. Remember, God's best, the best commentary on the Word of God is 
the other parts of the Word of God. <laughs> Pretty handy. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but you're going to do it differently with each person. You're going to use the same truth, but you're going to apply it in the context of the relationship you have with that person. So if it's someone you don't know very well, lower the boom. <laughs> you know, what, what did you just say? Can you live with yourself after saying? No, I, I'm just kidding. That's an excellent response. That's an excellent, hey, why didn't I think of that? How about using God's word? Yeah, point them right back to the word. You can't go wrong pointing them back to the word. If they're a spirit-indwelt Christian, if they're a, a spirit-led Christian, he will not let, we have to remember that it's not our responsibility to change them. It's God's responsibility to change them. And he is so much better at it. Yeah, so point them to his word and then just pray for the Holy Spirit to go to work on them. And uh, um, I remember my boss telling me time and time again, you know, the Holy Spirit did fine before you came around. And, and that was pointing me back to some of 1 Corinthians 13 often. But we had that kind of relationship. He could do that. It didn't make me mad. I didn't get offended. I didn't go into my safe space or, or grab a teddy bear. Actually, it wouldn't have been a teddy bear. It probably would have been an M16 or something. But, you know. <laughs> have you hugged your M16 today? Oh, my. This is on, this is on the Internet. Okay. Can you edit that out? Okay. Work on it, Josh. So you're going to bring people back to the realization in different ways, depending on your relationship with them and, and I, you know, in the context of the discussion that has been happening. Sometimes it's, you can quickly point them back to God's Word. Sometimes you have to slowly bring them back. But always, as you pointed out there, bring them back to this. Bring them back to this. Jenny. Yeah, there's ways to do that. Aren't you grateful that your mom taught you to do that? You did it well. She would be proud of you. So it brings it back to, because everything we have was given to us by God or by others. So um, when we were raising, rearing, rearing, well, whatever I call it, raising, raising our children, we taught them this concept that everything we have was given to others, given to us by others. And so when we would compliment them, they would take it in that context. I, my wife raised five, four decently decent people. I include myself among that. Uh, and they, they don't, they're not arrogant. They're not, close your ears, Nicholas. They're not arrogant. They're, they understand that those things that they have have come to them from others and from God. So you, you, as you're raising children, raise them, raising them in the context of God's word and this concept that everything, don't be arrogant because what you have, as Paul said, where did you think you got that? You got it from someone else. You got it from God. Then they're raised in that context. What we're dealing with is a, a, a world that hasn't been raised in that context. And so you have to look for creative ways to praise them while drawing their attention back to the fact that that good work they did was built into them, was given to them, without def defrauding them in their praise. Because if they do a good thing, it deserves praise. It does deserve praise. And so that, that takes creativity. And I, I'm probably not the guy to ask for the creativity there. I've thought through some things over the years. That was a, that's just what you, you were taught. That's excellent, good work, you know, that kind of thing. Then it reminds the person that, oh, yeah, yeah, I was taught that. It didn't come out of me. The true arrogant person who is an arrogant won't get it anyway. So, but you may very well be the person that will be that little prick that starts them on the road to having a conscience and understanding that it wasn't them. Any other comments? Did that help? Okay.
Verse 5. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. So act unbecomingly. To act unbecomingly, to act outside the scheme of things, to refuse to acknowledge that there is an appropriate way to do certain things. It seems today that the concept of good manners has gone the way of the dodo bird. Language that I used to hear only in the lunchroom at the mills I worked at, and even then, certain words were only heard occasionally. I hear now, today, on the street, coming out of the mouths of 10-year-olds, and every other word is frighteningly effervescent. I, I, and that this, to me, is an example of the breakdown of our society, that, that foul, rude communication has become the order of the day. It also, to me at least, in some respects, evidences a society that has lost the ability to parse their words and to think through a sentence and to come up with delightful adjectives to give color and flavor to what they're saying to you. So they fall back on about four words that are all four letters and foul. And it's, it's unsettling, both in the fact that it's rude, it's arrogant, and that it bespeaks a society that is devolving towards illiteracy in many respects. That was for free. That's not even in here. So this word connotes someone who never acts inappropriately in a, different, in a given situation. Now, okay, that bespeaks unsinfulness, unsinfulness or sinlessness, and I don't mean it that way. I mean their general tenor is that they will act correctly in a given situation. And by, by the way, what my wife has often told me, the precursor to that is slow down. If nobody's dying, take your time. Think it through. <laughs> you know, somebody's dying, okay, big difference. Kick people out of the way and save them. But 99% of the time, that is not what's happening. <laughs> Love is the opposite of this. It always acts appropriately in a given situation. In Corinth, the rich would take the supper first. Some were hungry. Some were drunk. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody was rude. Everybody was unloving. Everybody talked at once. And everyone tried to be the most dramatic and the most prominent and the most important. It was Saturday Night Live without a director. It was noise and Clamor, what Paul talked about in the beginning of this. Rudeness was the order of the day. The Greek word translated here means not according to a proper scheme. Yes, there is often a proper scheme in the way things are done. Miss Manners was very helpful in her day. And I think deserves a comeback. At least in my estimation. I actually looked stuff up sometimes. What should I do here? Oh, that would have been really bad if I'd have done that. So I looked up a list of bad manners. And I found everything under the sun. Cue Ecclesiastes right here. The list included mostly modern social ills, such as talking on the phone when in company of others. But most of the lists included things such as foul language, not saying please and thank you, dismissive attitudes toward giving one's seat up to ladies or the elderly, exhibiting bad manners when eating out, which included table etiquette as well as loud voices, letting your children misbehave, and dressing inappropriately. There were plenty of others, but the point is, love plans ahead and thinks these things through and is very careful to make sure it is appropriate in a given situation, any given situation that the person is found in. The best thing to keep in mind is what kinds of things should I be doing that would promote the dignity of those that I am interacting with. 
So that's, that's the idea of, of does, is, uh, is, it's, it's arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. The second aspect of this is it does not seek its own. This negative description of love is not, is, it, that love is not self-centered, seeking all things for itself, describes the opposite of the Corinthian situation. They sought their own way in every situation. By the way, you don't have to wait for me to ask a question. If you see something, you can see something, say something. <laughs> you can raise your hand. Whether it was at law with the pagans or the Lord's Supper or it seems in general in their lives with one another, they were preoccupied with themselves and not with the things of others and with the things of the Lord. They did not use their spiritual giftedness to build up the church or to build up others. They used them to build themselves up and in some cases to tear each other down. This is living for oneself to the max. When we live for ourselves, we shrink spiritually and we close ourselves off to others even possibly unintentionally. When we live for others, we grow. We become occupied with loving, caring, and giving rather than grudging, being unfriendly, and taking. These are people who insist on their own way, who are always right, and who never have time for you. Christ sought the lost. He didn't need to take the time to do what he did. He was the God of the universe. I mean, compare us to earthworms. He was the God of the universe. He sought the lost. Although he was always right and was in fact God, he did not insist upon those rights, it says in Philippians, but rather he demoted himself to become a servant and a savior. And he has, and he has decided in that. Did you think about this? Now he says to himself, now I'm being anthropomorphic here, so forgive me, but he says to himself, I have an eternity to spend with them, to take care of them, to bless them. That's what he's doing for us. And do you think he's doing it with a sour face? Well, I've got to spend time with that razor jerk. I would. No, he's delighted that he saved us, that he has an eternity to spend with us. That's how we need to feel with others. And then the <coughs> verse, last one is... Uh, Actually, it's not the last. We might not make it through this verse. We'll try. He is, this love is not provoked. Oh, this was a good one. Oh, yeah. I forgot to. There's that verse, Corinthians verse, in case you were wondering. And there's that one. <laughs> is not provoked. Ah, uh, yeah. Why do I have this PowerPoint if I don't use it? So the word is paroxysmo. It's where we get the English word paroxysm, where somebody just blows up, explodes. Uh, have any of you ever had that happen to you? And, and, and sometimes, not always, sometimes you knew a cause, but sometimes did you go, where did that come from? Well, that's the nature of this. It doesn't necessarily need an actual honest-to-goodness provocation. The person is already that type of person. They're already a volcano ready to explode, and what you did was you took a little pinprick and you pricked the, mag the little tiny thin seal over the magma, and the volcano exploded. Jesus, lest we not, lest we take this at wrong though, not being provoked, Jesus was angered at the misuse of his father's temple of prayer. Paul was continually angered by those who misused the gospel or who even gave a false gospel such as the Galatians Judaizers. God is angry with sin every day. This is not what this portion is talking about. The word translated is not provoked is a word from which we get, I said, the English word paroxysm. It is a sudden outburst of anger when something is done against us that is personally offensive. Paul did not get angry at those who beat him and jailed him and lied about him. Jesus was not angry with those who even put him on the cross. He forgave them. They, in fact, were fulfilling Scripture. Isn't that interesting? 
The people that drove the nails through his hand didn't get the same treatment as people who were selling and buying in the temple. He took a bullwhip to them. He asked his father to forgive the ones who nailed him to the, to the tree. This word is describing someone who is focused on their own personal rights. What benefits me? It's all about me. As a matter of fact, the world does revolve around me. Anybody got any questions? They will be, when one is so focused, they will be very unloving and difficult to be around. Any perceived or real slight can be met with their anger towards you, their abuse towards you, and their hate towards you. There are millions of things that can provoke anger, but only one person who can, by his indwelling spirit, give someone victory over this difficult character flaw. It is a sin, not just a character flaw. I use that term sometimes, but it is interchangeable with the word sin. It is very real, and it is very damaging. Much damaging can be done very quickly by somebody with a bad temper. I had a bad temper for many years, and I can still... If it, you know, people say, if I, had it to do a, if I had it to do all over again, I'd do a whole bunch of stuff different by God's grace. I used, to, I used to be an explosive person years ago, the kind of person that people did, were afraid of to say anything to. It has taken years for God to weed that out of me. I don't know why, but just has. He took foul language from me overnight. But that part of me took years. And it's one of those things that even now I, I think to myself, boy, you know, that could come back in an instant. I do not want that. I, I want to be an approachable, kind, considerate, caring person who people look to for help, not are afraid to come to at all. And, you know, <laughs> at any rate, that's what these people are like. Any perceived or real slight can be met with those things. Much damage can be done very quickly by someone with a bad temper. The boiling over splatters and wreaks collateral damage on others not necessarily involved in the difficulty. It was this attitude that was helping fuel the Corinthian decisions to sue one another to tolerate wickedness, to do some of those kinds of things. They were reacting in, in anger over their personal rights being violated. Love doesn't do this. It doesn't allow itself to be provoked. It is looking outside itself all the time to better and to bless others. It overlooks sins against itself, although that does not include the maligning or, or contradiction of the word of God. But personal insults do not gain any traction with one who has this aspect of love. We're going to finish through verse, this verse. So this is a person who is not a volcano, but rather is a calm sea of quietude who others can come to, even when they know that you've got to, you've got to correct. When they're going to be corrected, they're willing to be corrected. Does anybody in here think that they're there, that they have attained? None of us have attained. We are all going to need correction in the next, for me, in the next few minutes, for some of us in the next years, in the next months, Welcome that correction. Welcome that correction from a brother or sister in Christ who is bringing you the truth of God's word that will mold you more into the likeness of the Savior. The next word does not take account a wrong suffered. And I, I didn't want to miss finish up without talking. Whoops, wrong way. Finish up without talking with this one. Does not take into account logizomai. What do you do when you... As an accountant, when you've got a, a, a ledger and you've got to insert a number into part of that ledger, what's that call? You do what to it? You log it in. That's how you can remember this. That's how I remember it. This is a person who doesn't take accounts of wrongs suffered. It's actually a Greek bookkeeping term that means to calculate or reckon, such as when one enters a figure into a ledger. It has been helpful to me with that mnemonic device. In Romans 4.8, God reminds us that blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. 
He doesn't log it into his database. Same word. God does not take his forever sharp pencil and mark down each time we fail in sin. Fail in sin. Certainly, if this was something God did for one life alone, there would not be room enough in the world to contain the ledgers that would have to be printed up to account for all of those hack marks, check marks. So we would do well to strengthen our memories of others' good points and downplay the rest. Some of the most miserable people that I've met are those who, keep, who can remember the ancient wrongs of others have, that others have committed against them. Warren Wiersbe tells of such a man. He said this, One of the most miserable men I ever met was a professed Christian who actually kept in a notebook a list of the wrongs he felt others had committed against him. Forgiveness means that we wipe the record clean and we never hold things against people. That doesn't mean that you aren't careful. If someone commits a crime against you, you can, pardon, you can forgive them, but you can't pardon them. You can no longer take that into account. You can love them. But if they are a committed theft thief, you probably won't let them take care of your silverware. Make certain that they don't know where your coin collection is. But you can love them in other ways. This is a, it's a smart, love is, God's word's always talking about smart words. Words that, 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 as you use the rest of God's word to comment on it, they cover every facet of the diamond necessary. So this is someone who doesn't keep account of the wrongs that he's suffered, but he doesn't necessarily accord the person, here, welcome, do that again to me. But he loves them and he cares for them. So we're going to end on that. Are there any questions or comments about verse 5, which uh, doesn't act unbecomingly, doesn't seek its own, is not provoked, doesn't take into account a wrong suffered? I know you've all experienced those things. And I know by God's grace, in most cases, if not all, you have been able to love the person in return. Sometimes offering them a word of encouragement, sometimes a word of correction, sometimes a word of reproof, sometimes a word of instruction, sometimes all four. That's what God calls us to. That's what relationships are about. That's the relationship he has with us. Does he correct you as a loving father? Loving you every minute that he's correcting you? but doing it because it's for your best, for the short term and the long term. So let's just close with this. Those kinds of things that we need to do those kinds of reproofs, corrections, instructions, and even praises are contained in that which is sanctifying us every day, day by day, the Word of God. So let's always turn to it. We don't, it's good to have helps, counselors, but trust the Word. It is sufficient. It has covered every aspect of everything we need. God didn't, it could have been two pages bigger, it could have been two pages smaller, font sizes all aside. It's just exactly what we need to live out those kinds of love that God has for us to live out amongst ourselves and amongst each other today. Let's pray. Lord, we're glad, we're glad you love us and we're glad that you modeled this love because we wouldn't know how to do it if we didn't have your word and your example. And you have said that that God is love. We know that doesn't mean that God is an excuse for everyone to do anything they want, but rather that God is an, an anchor and a direction and a definition of the word that we can look to and be edified, sanctified, and eventually glorified alongside the Lord Jesus Christ. But we will give the, him the glory and you the Father alone. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.